Good morning. Love for you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're taking a, a short break from Revelation, but not exactly because we're going to be talking about the day of the Lord. And it's, very, it's a, a passage of scripture that actually George referenced uh, yesterday, or last, last week in his sermon in Revelation. While you're turning there, I would just like to point out that it, I've learned over the years that several of you have or share with me the same recurring nightmare. I've talked with you and you said you, you have this recurring nightmare that's somewhere like, that goes something like this. There's a, uh, a class, maybe it's a college class, maybe it's a high school class, and you show up for this class, but you didn't realize there was an exam that day. Could be a semester exam, could be the final exam, and you're in the class, you think you're doing well, and all of a sudden, professor, teacher puts the paper on your table, and you're in a little bit of a panic. My recurring nightmare is a little more detailed than that, or maybe uh, a more worked out than that. And possibly the Christian Psychological Center can help me discover why I keep having this very detailed uh, nightmare regarding not being ready. But in my recurring nightmare, I actually almost always go to the same high school or same school, um, which looks suspiciously like Oak Court Mall. And it's got you know, two, two stories and has kind of an open atrium uh, to it. Um, my problem is, though, it's not just that I, that I don't know or that I'm, I'm, I'm going to be surprised by this exam. Uh, it's actually that I've never been to the class ever. And I realize I probably should go sometime to this class. And I'm worried that I, I don't even, I'm not even sure, I keep looking at the paper, if I know what this class is about. I don't know where it's located, so I'm trying to find it as I walk around my Oak Court Mall school. And it's getting later and later, and I'm getting more and more, you know, worked up in my spirit. To top it all off, in my recurring nightmare, I'm never dressed appropriately for school as I walk around looking for this classroom that I can't find. And usually I'm in some kind of weird pajama outfit, and as I'm walking around, I don't want to ask anybody anything because they're looking at me weird and I just want to get to this class. Ugh, and my heart's racing even as I'm sleeping. And I'm just thinking over and over again, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I'm not ready at all. Though some of us share that recurring nightmare and uh, can, can laugh at it a little bit, even though we might wake up from that, that nightmare with our heart rate a little elevated and maybe you're feeling a little sweaty and feel like you need to calm yourself down and say it's going to be okay, we can probably laugh nevertheless thinking that's, that's, that's silly. I'm not, uh, I don't have a test. It's going to be, it's going to be okay. But we can't laugh or we don't find it humorous when we think about what it means to be prepared for what we've been studying in Revelation. Because those things are real. So when we read and study, for instance, where we've been the last several weeks about the, the bowls, the seven bowls of God's judgment, uh, those things aren't humorous when you think about, am I, am I ready for that? Are, are we ready for that? Are we ready for the day of the Lord, the return of Christ? This was the concern that the Thessalonians had here in 1 Thessalonians. 
These Christians in the Greek city of Thessalonica where Paul had preached and and God by the Spirit had brought about this church, this group of believers whose lives had been changed from worshiping idols to now giving their hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, And as they had been taught about the day of the Lord, the return of Christ, they had some concerns. One of their concerns was, well, what about the people that die before Jesus returns? Are they going to miss out on the blessing of Christ returning? And Paul addresses uh, that question in the end of chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. Um, and as he talked about, hey, you're not going to miss out if, you've died, if you died before and if you're alive when it happens, that altogether we are going to live with him forever. So then maybe the next question came, well, well when will this forever start? When is this going to happen? And will I be ready? Am I going to be ready for that moment when Christ returns? Well, let's read Paul's answer in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we sit under your word this morning, we would ask that your Holy Spirit would speak to us. Lord, you know where we are in our minds and hearts this morning. And so you are the one that can apply this word directly to where it's needed. Father, teach us, for your servants are listening. Amen. Well, in the passage that we have before us this morning, there are three questions that are answered here for us. And the first question is this, who is not ready? Who is not ready for the day of the Lord? And the answer comes real quickly in verses 1 through 3. The the ones who are not ready are those who are not looking for it. Like it says in verse 3, the ones who are saying, "Well, well, peace and security, we don't need to worry about that. Everything's fine. We've got peace. We've got security. It's people who are saying, you know what? Yeah, maybe I believe in God, but God is never coming with judgment. I don't believe in that God. The God I believe in is a God who is just kind of like a kind grandfather who's going to come just in kindness, isn't isn't God love. He's not coming in judgment. We have peace. We have security. Don't worry about it. Others might say, well, I don't believe in God at all. So, of course, I'm not going to believe any kind of, you know, impending doom. I'm not believing that God is going to return. So I don't, I don't, I do feel peace and security about that. I'm not worried about, about that. They're not looking for it. Paul later refers to them 
as those who are living in darkness. It's interesting to note in verses 1 and 2, Paul's reminder here. He says, he says in verse 1, Now concerning the times and season, brothers, seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. The times and seasons, what is he saying? Concerning the, the, the time, the actual time when Jesus is going to return, when the day of the Lord is going to happen, I don't need to write to you anymore about this because probably he's, because he's taught them about that already. He's already, I've already taught you about that. I don't need to write to you about the times uh, regarding the return of the Lord. And then he goes on and he writes them anyways in verse 2. He says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Why is Paul emphasizing this even though he says, I don't need to write this to you again. And then he writes it to him again. I wonder if it's because the Thessalonians thought, well, we could be ready if we just know when it's going to happen. Then we could get ourselves ready because we know it's about to happen and we can be ready for when Christ returns. You know, I think people for, for centuries have been trying to go at it that way, have been trying to figure out the exact time that Jesus is going to return. I remember years ago when I had just started out in, in ministry, I was in this, uh, this little Christian bookstore in Rock Hill, South Carolina, and happened to be right by, right by the, uh, this, hap- this display happened to be right by the, the checkout. It was this little book that said 88 Reasons, it was entitled 88 Reasons, why the return of Christ will happen in 1988. And apparently it sold a lot. Like it it sold a lot of copies. Well, of course, that didn't happen. And would you believe it? This same author wrote a book next year that was entitled, I'm not lying, 89 Reasons Why the Return of Christ Will Happen in 1989. And there have been predictions. Uh, Harold Camping, the, the, the radio guy, in 1994 was saying, I know Jesus is returning in 1994. Didn't work out. So he said, I know Jesus is turning, returning in 2011. She pointed out, well, how it didn't work out. That didn't happen either. Um, there have actually been, uh, I, I looked it up yesterday, there have been a, a, you know, a significant um, prediction that it would happen in 2019. One that would happen in 2020. There's one out that will happen in 2021. Still got three months left, so maybe it's going to work out, right? But don't worry, because there's also a prediction about 2022. And there's one about 2025. So at some point, you can just catch one of those trains, and you're going to be okay. But you know what? Jesus, in speaking to his disciples, recorded in Matthew 24, Jesus himself makes it clear. (laughs) It's going to come like a thief in the night. That's what Jesus said to his disciples. It's going to be sudden. He said it's going to happen that, that two are walking together and one is taken and one is left behind. It's going to be sudden. It's going to be definitive. It's going to show clearly those who belong to Christ and those who do not belong to Christ. It's going to be something that, uh, um, that only, as Jesus said, only the Father, only the Heavenly Father knows. Jesus says to his disciples when he's there on earth, I don't know the times and days. Only the Father knows the times and the days. So here Paul teaches again what he knows from the Lord Jesus when he says that the coming of Christ is going to be, first of all, like a thief in the night, uses Jesus' words, and then he says, like labor pains coming upon a pregnant woman. What point is Paul making to the Thessalonians? He's making these two points. First of all, that a thief in the night, as a thief in the night comes, the return of Christ is going to be sudden and unpredictable. 
if you're a good thief, and hopefully there's not any good thieves in this room, when you rob a house, you do it at a time that's unpredictable and you do it suddenly. Return of Christ is going to be sudden and we're not going to be able to predict it. And then he goes on to say it's going to be like labor pains that come upon a pregnant woman. And what's his point there? His point is this, that it's inevitable. The return of Christ is inevitable. If you're nine months pregnant, you're probably going to experience labor pains pretty soon. The return of Christ is sudden and unexpected, but it is also inevitable. This return of Christ could happen today, brothers and sisters, before you finish lunch today. Christ could return. But if he does not, it's still inevitable. It's still going to happen because God has said it will happen. So I ask you, brothers and sisters, are you ready? Are you ready for the day of the Lord? Paul answers the question, who's not ready? He then goes on in verses 4 through 7 and answers the question, who is ready? And it's interesting in these verses, verses 4 through 7, that in answering the question, who is ready for the day of the Lord, he starts with their identity and not their activity. He starts with who they are before he gets to what they do. See, in verse 4, he says, but you brothers, or he could, he could translate it, brothers and sisters, you family of God. And then he goes on in verse 5 and calls them children of light, children of the day. Many places in Scripture, certainly all over the New Testament, that is a description of people who say they are followers of Christ. If you're a follower of Christ, you put your faith in Christ, you are a children of the day, you're a child of the day, you're a child of the light. Turn in your Bibles over to Ephesians chapter 5. Paul himself uses this several places. Here in chapter 5 of Ephesians, speaking to them about the life that they used to live and how they need to walk as uh, God's children. Ephesians 5 verse 6. Paul writes this, Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The wrath is coming. Verse 7, Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were in darkness, but you are now light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. When Paul is giving his testimony in Acts chapter 26 and, and explaining the ministry that he has been given by God, he says this in Acts chapter 26. He says, God has given me this ministry. He, he was the one that blinded me with his light on the road to Damascus. And now he's given me this ministry to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And this is the way he says it, that, that they may turn from darkness to light. Jesus himself, when he spoke to his disciples a couple of times, called his disciples sons of the light. See, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you understand that the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes. You once were blind, but now you can see. You are a, a child of the light. You are a child of the day. So, we start with our identity. Who's ready? Those who are children of the day, who are children of the light. Okay, so as we wait for the day of the Lord, what do children of the light or children of the day do? They do day things. That's what they do. <laughs> Earlier in Thessalonians chapter 1, 
Paul points out to them about their transformation in Christ. And he says uh, over in in chapter 1, I'll begin reading at verse 6, And you became imitators of us, the ones who preached the gospel, and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only is the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and, verse 10, to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So Thessalonians, so children of the day, children of the light, as you wait for the Lord's turn uh, to return, what do you do? What is your activity? Paul points out three things here in verses four through seven. First of all, he says to them, be watchful. Don't be asleep, be awake. Because those who are in darkness sleep when it's night, but you're children of the day. So act like children of the day and be alert, be watchful, pay attention. You know, earlier this summer, we had a series here uh, on Sunday morning, three Sunday mornings in a row in in July. Uh, Brent Stenberg taught a couple of them. Lauren Maddox, our new director of Shepherding Resources, taught one of them. She taught on uh, re-engaging life in a wise way after the pandemic. I'm sure you can still get those on the website. And she asked a question where she actually told us that we needed to ask a question of ourselves. And it, and it did something for me that, that I hadn't ever happened before. And that is that phrase, paying attention, became something more than just something, you know, you just generally say. Like, hey, you need to pay attention. But I began to think about it because she said, I don't know if you remember if you were here, she said, hey, it's really important for us to pay attention to what we are paying attention to. And I wrote that down. He says, you need to ask yourself, am I paying, what am I paying attention to? Now, in, return, in, in regards to our relationship with Jesus Christ and the return of the Lord, Paul here is saying, pay attention. And what does he want us to pay attention to? He wants us to pay attention to the Word of God. He wants us to pay attention to be alert and awake to God's Word. Alert and awake to what God is doing, the work of the Holy Spirit. Alert and awake into what's happening in the world based on what God has said. So he says, first of all, children of the day are watchful. Secondly, he says, children of the day are self-controlled. They're not drunk. I mean, they're not drunk, they're sober. He's not making a point necessarily about alcoholism or even alcohol right at this point. He's making this point about what it means to be under control, to, to have all your faculties, as opposed to being out of control, being controlled by something else. And he's saying children of the day are, are sober. They're, they're um, self-controlled. They, they, they know what their actions are and why they're doing those actions. And they're choosing that. Now I know, and you know, and let's just affirm this together before I ask you this question, that our standing before the Lord is based on the merits that we've received through Christ. We actually, we actually said that catechism this morning, that we're basing our salvation completely on him, not on our actions. 
So as asked this question, this isn't a matter of making sure you're doing the right thing so you don't get in trouble when Jesus returns. It's more a matter of just being sober. And here's the question. If Jesus comes back when you and I are still alive, when that moment comes, what do you want to be caught doing? When you're interrupted because Christ has returned, what do you want to be doing when you're interrupted? What do you not want to be doing when you're interrupted by Christ's return? Let's be sober. Let's be self-controlled. Let's, let's be thinking. Let's be whatever it is that you want to be doing when Christ returns. Let's be doing those things. Let's be giving our attention to those things. We're going to be watchful. We're going to be self-controlled as we wait for the day of the Lord. And we also we see in verse 8, want to be armed for spiritual warfare. This is the verse that George pointed out last week. Verse 8, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Faith, hope, and love, the triad that you find in 1 Corinthians and chapter 1 of Thessalonians, so many places. And again, Paul is talking about uh, using the metaphor of armor. He often uses the metaphor of, of uh of warfare, because he understands that this is a spiritual battle, that you and I are in a spiritual battle. And what is he saying here by say, talking about a breastplate and talking about a helmet? He's saying, first of all, we need to guard our hearts. We need to guard our hearts with faith and love. What does that mean? We guard our heart by, by realizing and recognizing and intentionally putting our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and not in other things for our security and our peace. It is our great temptation to put it into other things for our security and our peace. And when we do that, we make our hearts vulnerable. He says, guard your heart by faith. Guard your heart as you put on the breastplate of love. What is he talking about? He's talking about our focus on the love that God has for us and on the reciprocal or a response that we have to God's love by our love for God. Put on that as a security that guards your heart. Why? Because it's our great temptation to chase other loves. It's our great temptation to find satisfaction in other things that, and people that will love us. And when we do that, we make our hearts vulnerable to spiritual warfare. Saying, guard your heart with love and with faith. And then he says... Guard your mind. Why do we need to guard our minds as we wait for the Lord's return? Well, George said it last week. Because everybody's losing their mind. And sometimes that's happened to some of us, hasn't it? In the midst of all the, all the different cultural and stuff like that, we're, we're, we're not thinking straight sometimes. Paul says, let's guard our minds with the hope of salvation. When the Bible talks about hope, it's not talking about it as some kind of wish He's talking about it as a certainty, a certainty of our salvation. Why is it the helmet of salvation that, that guards our minds that helps us think straight? Well, because when we understand our lives and our culture and our relationships in the context of having been saved by grace to Christ and for his purposes, that becomes for us an amazing grid, a, grid, a, a worldview. Lenses by which we can see the world. We understand now things. We can, we can read our newspapers and watch TV and pick up our devices with the context of 
I have been saved by Christ for a purpose and I need to think through that lens as I approach all these things so that I don't lose my mind. I need to guard it in the midst of this spiritual warfare. So he says, children of the day, children of the light. It starts with their identity, who they are in Christ. And as as they are children of the day, as that's their identity, then they do day things. They're watchful, they're self-controlled, and they're armed for spiritual warfare. Brothers and sisters, are you ready for the day of the Lord? Are you living ready for the day of the Lord? And then lastly, and best of all, oh, it's best of all. In verses 9 and 10, Paul answers the question, what makes them ready? What is it that makes them ready? And the answer here is amazing. The answer here is the best news you've ever heard in your life. What makes anyone ready for the return of the Lord is this, that Christ has taken on himself the wrath that we deserved. The wrath of God is coming. Christ has taken on himself the wrath that we deserved. And if you put your faith in Christ, what makes you ready is not your action, but what Christ has done. You heard just a little bit ago that Brian prayed for me. My mother passed away this week. In some ways, um, it, it, it wasn't surprising. She, her, her, uh, her health has been a struggle for a long time, probably five or six years. But the last couple of weeks went pretty, pretty rapidly. She went in the hospital just two weeks ago yesterday. And discovered that, uh, um, that her body was, was really just completely shutting down. And I'm thankful that um, she went without pain uh, pretty quickly to be in the arms of the Lord. And on Thursday, I drove over Thursday afternoon right away. And on Friday, I spent the day with my dad and my brother and we went around Chattanooga. I drove over to Chattanooga, went around Chattanooga making arrangements And we cried some together, and we laughed some. It was a really sweet time. How is that possible? How is it possible that my father, who's been married to his wife for 58 years, who has sat by her side very faithfully in the last six years, taking care of her day after day, how is it possible that my father could ever laugh on the day after his wife died? How is it possible that he could have a a sweet time? Brothers and sisters, there's just only one way. There's only one hope, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. How is it possible? How do we have hope? How can we, like, Paul says earlier in chapter 4 of Thessalonians, verse 13, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. How is that possible? How do we grieve but not grieve as those who have no hope? There's only one answer. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. And that's everything. Look at these verses that are before us, verse 9 and 10. Just absolutely amazing. 
It says, first of all, in verse 9, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. God has not destined us for wrath. Let's talk about that word wrath here for a second. There is wrath. God's wrath is coming. You say, what do you, that's just, that's terrible news. We don't like to talk about God's wrath. We don't like to, to talk about how he hates sins. He, we don't like to talk about how he's going to punish sins. We have to. Grace is not amazing unless there's something to be saved from. And we have, a tempta- we, have a, we have a tendency to just want to talk about everything else and not talk about the fact that we've been saved, by, saved from wrath. But listen, before I came to know Jesus, before I put my faith in Christ, I was a, a, a child of disobedience, as we read in Ephesians 5. I deserve God's wrath. It's not because God is some, some angry God who's impatient. or anything. It's because his character is pure and holy, and he cannot stand in the presence of sin because it's who he is. The wrath of God is real. But how beautiful this news. For God has not destined us for wrath for those who have put their faith in Christ, but instead offered salvation. That's the good news. That's what makes grace amazing because it has paid the price of this wrath. How did that happen? How do we go from bad news to good news? He continues in verse 10. Because Jesus Christ, who died for us. Brothers and sisters, the love of God is not some kind of mushy sentimentality that a, that a, that a, that a grandfather God has for you, that he looks down on you and goes, oh, you know what, I, I created them, I'm just gonna, I'm just, you know, I just have good feelings for them. It's not, it's not God looking down and going, you know what, I know you tried hard today and you almost got it and you were almost good, so you know what, I, that's good. It was cute the way you tried. I, I appreciate that, so, you know, we're gonna give you the E for effort on that one and, and just roll with that. That is not God's love. God's love is a cross on Golgotha outside of Jerusalem that actually took place in an actual place. God's love for you is a fact of history. It happened. You can point to it and say, I know God loves me. It was a cosmic transaction. The wrath of God that was on you, that was on me, was taken off of you and me and at the cross, it was placed on Christ. And the righteousness of Christ was taken and placed on you and me. Christ died for us. God's love for you is a fact of human history. A cosmic transaction that is completely finished. Why would he do that? Why would God do that? It says it right there in verse 10. So that whether we're awake or asleep, whether you are alive or you have died, that he, that you might live with him. Christ died for us that we might live with him. We've been singing about it and talking about it with each other all morning through the service. Pull out your bulletin. Turn to the the assurance of divine pardon. Galatians 2.20, Brian read this. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is truth. Christ lives in you. 
And the life you now live, you don't live by your own strength, but in faith through Christ himself who has loved you. Turn back a page to the hymn that we opened up the service with. Look what it says. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And look at that last verse. When he, when Christ shall come with trumpet sound, when the day of the Lord happens, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Faultless. Do you hear that? Faultless to stand. For those who have put their faith in Christ, my mother and others who were prayed about this morning when they stood before the throne on whatever day it is they passed away, if they had put their faith in Christ, they were dressed in his righteousness and they were faultless before the throne of God, before a holy God. Faultless. It reminds me that great Charles Wesley hymn, And Can It Be? Do you remember the last line, the last verse? No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, alive in Christ, my living head, my my leader, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Bold? Bold? My mom and others could boldly approach the throne and claim the crown. When Christ returns, you can boldly approach the throne? Yes. Yes, you can. Because it's not in you. You'll be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And because Christ can boldly approach the throne, you clothed in his righteousness, you can boldly approach the throne. Brothers and sisters, are you ready? You ready for the day of the Lord? Are you ready to boldly approach the throne and claim the crown through Christ? your own. There's one more thing we don't want to miss as we leave this morning. Look at verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Paul says this. There's one more thing. Hey, for all these things we've talked about, all that's been said here, all this about Christ's return, being watchful, being, being self-controlled, armed for spiritual battle, your identity is children of light, the fact that Christ has died for you that you might live with him. What do we do with this? All these things. He says this, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. That is your work when you leave here this morning. That is the ministry God has given you to do. The ministry that you have for in this church is to encourage one another in these things and build each other up. And you say, wait, isn't that what the pastor and the staff does? No, not really. If you look in Scripture, you'll understand what our role is is a little different than your role. My job as a pastor, the other job, Brian, George, others, our job, 
according to scripture, is to equip the saints to do the ministry of the church. That's you. You're the saints. Maybe you've sat in here many times wondering if you had a purpose at Second Presbyterian Church. You thought, I need to have some kind of ministry here. Well, there it is. Verse 11. Get after it. Encourage one another. Build each other up. Because Christ is coming. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beauty and the truth of your word. Lord, we ask that you would take these things and you would seal them to our hearts. Lord, sink it deep into us by your spirit's power that we might be encouraged. And being encouraged in our identity and our standing, dressed in your righteousness alone. Father, may we be those who are watchful, self-controlled, and guarding our hearts and our minds. And Father, if there's anyone here or within sound of my voice who is not ready, who has never put their faith in you, oh Father, open their eyes to see this glorious salvation that you have given and claim them as your own. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.